Duncan Fletcher here, back for another PADS podcast. I'm here with my co-pilot, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Doing well. Good morning. Steph, we've got a great guest here. We've got Christian Thomas, who works for the Premier League. He's currently the player care and engagement manager there. Christian, thanks again for taking the time to join us today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's Friday afternoon. We're recording this, so always good to be heading into the weekend. That's right. TJIF, let's get out of the week and into the weekend. Completely agree with you. Well, again... Greatly appreciate you making the time to connect. We had the pleasure of meeting you at the Athlete Development Summit that took place in New York in May. So it's a phenomenal opportunity to reconnect and hopefully share a little bit of your story with our listeners. So again, let's dive into it. So maybe Christian, if you don't mind, we do know that you have a pretty interesting background. Maybe you could talk about a little bit of your uh, sporting background. Just give us the Coles notes as to your background before you came into working in the athlete development space. Sure. So my background was in gymnastics, sport gymnastics. I was a professional athlete uh, for many, many years. I started the sport at about five years old. Obviously, at that stage, it's kind of all about sort of fun, learning, coordination, kind of, you know, going in, chucking yourself upside down, landing in the foam pits, trampolines, etc. And so it was a great sport to just really get stuck into and enjoy and, and always, you know, a new skill to learn at a very, very young age. And I was quite fortunate because, you know, I found a sport that at a young age that I not only enjoyed, but I was actually pretty good at too. So by sort of under 12s, I was part of the Great Britain team. So probably from about 10 years old and then sort of followed that path what pathway then uh, from under 12s, so under 14s, 16s, 18s, and then eventually onto the senior team in 2007, where I competed internationally for Great Britain at uh, the World Championships and then continued that progression as well. And ultimately in, in sort of Olympic sports, the, the pinnacle is the Olympic Games. I was even more fortunate because my Olympics, when I was at, I guess, the peak sort of age as a gymnast, was a home Olympics at London in 2012, which was just an unbelievable experience, competing in front of home crowd, having your friends, family, everybody there that you know supported you, your coaches, you know, as part of that journey up to that stage. And we came away with a team bronze medal as well at those Olympic Games. So something I'm extremely proud of. And then actually four years later, again, round two, Rio Olympics, still part of the GB team. But this time we went and I was team captain for the men's gymnastics team. And although the team result, we actually finished in fourth position that night. So not the result we wanted the year before. We'd won a world championship silver medal. So we knew we were one of the best teams in the world. And ultimately, we were out there gunning for uh, a medal. But Unfortunately, you know, that's that's the world of sport. Doesn't always quite work out the way we wanted to. But previously, just starting a, a couple of years prior to that, I, I knew that I was probably towards the tail end of my sporting career. And I started to make a few moves, started to have discussions around, okay, what does that that transition out of the sport look like? And um, I retired after Rio Olympics and have sort of been working in the, the world of sports administration really ever since. I did a, a degree as a mature student, strength and conditioning degree, so it was a sort of a sports science type degree at a local university because I, I knew I still wanted to be involved in sport, but I wasn't quite 100% certain on exactly what that sort of field or area was going to look like. And, you know, sort of just knocking on doors, having those conversations, just keeping connections open. Um, I ended up working for an organisation that looks after Great Britain's Olympic and Paralympic athletes. So a little bit like a union in terms of, you know, selection support or potentially mental health support or things like that in terms of a bit of a referral and triage point to help support the athletes. But 
at that point, I was also I was probably there a couple of years, and I'd always been a fan of football. And by football, I mean UK football here. So soccer over in the US, always been a fan, and and kind of grown up as our national sport. You know, it is by far our biggest sport within the UK, and you know everybody's a football fan, and it's quite tribal as well. Sort of the area that you live, you tend to support that team, and sort of fell into the world of football. Really, I, I guess I'd never had a massive desire to work in that that sort of sport, but. I'd always been a fan of the sports. When the opportunity came up to, to work as a player care and engagement manager, I certainly jumped at the chance and was lucky enough to be you know, the, the candidate to, to be successful in that role. And, and I guess my role now is a little bit twofold, really. It's the, the player care side, which is supporting all the player care staff. So I guess in, in the, sort of the US, it'd be similar type of roles as the athlete player development staff. So supporting them in their roles with resources, um, you know, governance structure, things that are going to help them do their job within the clubs as best as they can. And then the second part to my role is around the engagement side, player engagement, which is going out, canvassing, collating that player opinion, and then bringing that back to the Premier League. And that will help inform the decision-making for, you know, whether that's campaigns, maybe it's whether uh, participant behaviour, you know, it could be a, a whole range of topics. So that's where we are now. I'll be at the Premier League two years in January. It's, you know, been an exciting journey. There's a lot to learn. Certainly very, very different to the world of Olympic Paralympic sports, but I have to say I'm thoroughly enjoying it all the same. That's fantastic. And again, appreciate you sharing your background there. And as you're kind of riffing through what you experienced, I'm just curious, in your pathway as you were sort of climbing the ladder into the elite levels of, you know, national level gymnastics, were you exposed to individuals that now sort of play your role in the Premier League as a, an athlete development specialist or a player engagement specialist? Are those folks that you had access to coming up as, as you were developing as a young athlete? I would say towards the back end of my career, they were certainly a lot more visible and each sport were assigned to you know someone within that position. They called them performance lifestyle advisors at the time. And again, that was actually the person who I spoke to, a lady called Lindsay couple of years out pre-Rio I started having these conversations in terms of okay what what or what is it that I'm interested in what could my post-athlete career look like and how do we start to navigate that and, and start to move towards it and it was actually the Lindsay who had put me in touch with the university in terms of starting a degree so you know I came back from Rio Olympics in August and September I started my degree and again that was just such a, a massive significant change from my usual day-to-day but Equally, it gave me a completely new focus and something to really just jump straight into 100%, um, give it full commitment, something very, very different and enjoy. And so I would say now that over the, probably the last sort of eight years, they're, they're really starting to have a, an impactful sort of work and experience with the athletes now where I say they're, they're a lot more sort of front and centre. They're not on the periphery anymore. They're part of that multidisciplinary team and staff and coaching team. People can see the the impact that they have and the success of, you know, when it's successful of the working with the athletes. But I have to say, again, this was all funding dependent. So we didn't really start to see these sort of this position until post-Olympic, post-Olympics in London 2012, once we had a little bit of success, which meant more funding. And we were able to look at these sort of positions. But again, it was completely voluntary. It was up to the athlete, I say voluntary in terms of the athlete going up and making those connections. It wasn't mandated in, in any way. And so the onus had to be on the athlete really to start those conversations and to build those relationships and explore some, you know, some of those different avenues that they might want to explore for the future. 
I just want to dive a little deeper into that. You know, you spoke about Lindsay that helped more with that transition piece towards the end, but you started your career at such a young age, the age of five, even if initially it was for fun, but that mental preparation and dedication and perseverance and all of that that is needed to be successful in a sport such as gymnastics. I mean, you you hear of stories of Simone Biles today and how she had to take a break for her mental health. Just wondering what allowed you to persevere at such a young age, what resources, support, whether it was family, what was provided to you or around you to enable you to, to perform at such a high level? To be honest, it's probably looking back in hindsight now and at the time I, I probably wasn't aware of it, but I think first and you know, formally was my family. They were there every step of the way. They were the ones who had to take to training, took to competitions up and down the country and they were a massive, massive part in that success in terms of keeping me grounded, keeping me focused on not just being a gymnast, but also, you know, school, education as well. My mum was a massive advocate of that and not letting me sort of fall too far on the wayside of actually only prioritising sport. Um, so that was super helpful. I didn't always, you know, appreciate it. I think that support at the time I in my head wanted to be a gymnast. And so that's where I wanted to put my focus and my time and my energy. But looking back now, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful that she had a different perspective and, you know, a, a broader view, shall we say. I think, so that was one area. Then also I think my coach, Michelle Baker, she was a phenomenal coach in, in the sense of she perhaps, and she'll be the first to admit that she wasn't, you know, the most technical or, or have the most technical knowledge as a coach in the sport of gymnastics. But what she did have was have a perspective that was so unique in the fact that her son also competed as an international gymnast. And so she'd been through it as a parent, seeing her son and, and what that meant, what it looked like, what, you know, the training, the difficulties looked like. And so she understood it from a completely different perspective and was then able to use that in her coaching for me. So those sort of teenage years where, you know, you're, you're training full time, pretty much as a, a sort of 14 year old, you're doing probably 25 plus hours a week training which is essentially a full-time athlete, but you're doing along, alongside that full-time education, the pressures of school, the pressures of being a teenager, you know, all the different social pressures as well that comes with that. And she was just able to help me navigate that in a way that I think most of the people and coaches probably, you know, wouldn't have had, had the ability to, to do. So again, that was super important. And then towards the, I suppose, the tail end of my career, you know, I've, I've been with my wife now for the best part of 15 plus years. And so ever since sort of 16 years old. So again, she's played a massive part in that journey and having that consistency, that grounding, that person who's there, you know, whether it's good results or bad results is, is again, super important. So I guess putting all those together, they've all come in at different parts of my career and for all different reasons. But I think the main sort of element behind it all or the main theme is just having that consistency. You know, I, I, under no illusions that there could have been times where particularly after Olympic Games, you get certainly carried away in terms of success and, you know, having access to things that that perhaps you wouldn't have had before, but just having those consistent people in your life were very, very helpful in my career, for sure. Yeah, and I'm sure that mantra is, is carried on throughout your life, you know, especially in the work that you're doing now, is that consistency of support for the athletes that you're working with now. I hope so. I, I hope that, and I guess for the profile of some of the Premier League players that we're working with, they are, you know, without a doubt, some of the biggest profiles within our country, you know, including sort of celebrities, pop stars. British footballers are, are up there 100%. And so actually, because their life can be a little bit manic away from the training ground at home, just because of the attention that you know they're given, trying to keep things as simple as possible 
is actually probably a, quite a good and useful tool for them in terms of, you know, an entourage and in terms of who's actually their trusted circle. You know, the people that really are actually there for the right reasons and, you know, are not just sort of hanging on to them because of fame and fortune. So, again, I, I certainly think that there is an element to that and something that, you know, Premier League footballers can, can probably also learn a little bit from as well. One of the things I find fascinating is that, you know, everybody that works in the athlete development space is bringing their own experiences to the table and how they can help the people that are across from them. I'm just curious, how has your athletic experiences informed how you approach working with the athletes that you work with today? Sure, I think, and again, this is all with hindsight, right? I'm not saying I did this perfectly, but I think it, parts of it, it helped. I think sort of starting those conversations as early as possible. I was probably a little bit late to the party, I would say. I sort of only really started to formulate some plans and having those conversations, I'd say, two years prior to retiring. I'd say that's way too late, personally. I think, you know, it would have been much more helpful to have those conversations, you know, even five plus years prior to that. And so, you know, starting that journey a little bit sooner, I think is is something that I would always encourage with athletes and, and sort of exploring really. I, I think you tend to, I guess, always think that anything you do away from the pitch, the pool, the track is going to be detrimental to your performance on game day. And we now know that that's just not true. Actually, your general well-being is 100% a performance enabler. And so we know that having other interests, having other personal development areas, things that you can really focus a little bit of attention on, take your mind off the sport, off the game, is is going to be good for you, not only just mentally, but actually for your performance as well. So again, it's about encouraging the players to explore that space. It hasn't got to be, you know, a full-on vocation or, you know, a, a degree or anything like that. It can be something, you know, very, very simple and, and light-hearted and non-time committal, but it's about exploring that and starting to explore it and enjoying exploring it because there's plenty to learn about yourself along the way as you're doing that as well. This kind of leads to my next question because you're talking about exploration while you're still still competing at a high level. For you, you talked about Lindsay and enrolling in university. Can you talk to us about that transition piece and then that decision to retire, what that was like for you? Yeah, I think I was very, very fortunate in the fact that retirement for me was my decision. And by that, I mean, it wasn't because of deselection or injury or financial reasons or, you know, loss of form or or any of that. It was, I was personally ready to try something new. I'd done the sport for a very, very long time. I'd achieved everything and more that, you know, I ever thought I would. And so I was very, very content with the, my career as an athlete. And I also, that was kind of solidified with me as well. The first competition, gymnastics competition I ever went to watch was a British championship. So our biggest domestic championships. And this is probably about six months of me, not officially retiring, but kind of having in my head, I was done. I went to watch the competition and my first thought was, you know what, I'm so glad I'm sitting up here rather than down there on the competition floor. And that kind of really reiterated for me that this is 100% the right decision and also, I was excited. I knew I was still young enough to try new things. I knew I was, I was excited about what the future might hold, the new things I would have more time for and I could you know, put my energy into. And so for me, there was certainly an element of excitement going towards it as well. So you know, there, there was, without a doubt, there were still times where I struggled in terms of not being around your teammates that day to day. You go from spending all your time with your teammates, you know, changing rooms, uh, the good times of competitions, traveling hotel rooms, dinner, you know, you spend literally all your time with these people and then pretty much closing that door and not being in that situation a day-to-day basis, I think was probably one of the hardest things. 
I would certainly always encourage players, athletes to try and keep those connections within the sport as well, or certainly to, you know, have a staggered sort of um, approach when it comes to engaging with people within the sport. Because what I mean by that is I was still involved in the sport. I was still going and see my teammates every now and then. I still go watch competitions. I still go to the national centre, see some of the coaches, the teammates, etc. And actually, for me, that really, really helped. It didn't feel like I was, you know, completely shutting that that door in 100% closure. And so I would uh, certainly encourage athletes to do that. And the reality is when you're an athlete or a player or, or sports person, you are probably, you know, at your most highest profile at that stage. So utilize those connections that you can. You have all those connections in the changing room, you know, at the executive level, the coaching level. People want to speak to you uh, because you have that profile. And so actually it's about leveraging those as well along the way. Because once you do retire, you're probably going to see, you know, that that drop off a little bit. So again, I would always encourage athletes to, to leverage that in the right way because, you know, they are, are certainly well sought after. And to that end, I guess it's kind of a good jumping off point to talk about the work that you're doing right now at Premier League. What's the best part of the gig that you have now in terms of what you're able to bring to the table from your previous experiences? And how are you doing that day in, day out right now with Premier League? Well, I think the, the best bit is I'm a fan of the sport. Being a fan of the sport, actually, it's a pretty cool job to be in, you know, sort of engaging with the clubs and the Premier League as a brand as well. It, it is one of the world's biggest sporting leagues for sure. So to be part of that is very, very exciting. It's also exciting the fact that probably similar to some of the US sports in that player development, athlete development space, I think we're on the cusp of really starting to see the shift in the trajectory of this area sort of develop over the next sort of five years, I would say, within football. I already think that we're doing a brilliant, brilliant job within the academy space, but actually that probably hasn't really translated over to the first team just yet. So I think me and, and my line manager, so Michelle Farish, she's the one who brought me into the Premier League with sort of 30 plus years of, of football knowledge and expertise. So she's been sort of holding my hand, guiding me through all of this. We're really starting to see a bit of a shift in this in this area now. So it's an exciting space. There's probably still a little bit of work we have to do in terms of really selling, you know, the, the power of what these sort of people can bring to the team and bring to the athlete. I don't think we're 100% there yet, particularly, you know, within clubs. Football can be a little bit of a historical sport as well, rich on culture, rich on, on history, which is fantastic. But equally, that can sometimes hold us back a little bit when it comes to perhaps being innovative and, you know, moving things forward. So we just have to bear that in mind as well. But yeah, ultimately, that's probably where where we are and what I'm the most excited about because. I think we're really going to see this landscape shift within the first environment over the next five years. So to be part of that is great. And to be part of how we, we govern that and structure that is, is a big project, but equally very exciting. And with that growth over the next five years, you know, what is your vision in terms of providing the appropriate resources to those player care individuals at, at every club so they're better equipped to, to meet the, the players where they are and help them grow? Sure. So I think part of it is, is probably a little bit threefold, really. So we have the the actual people that are doing the role day in, day out at the club. So we know we need to focus on them and give them the appropriate support, training, personal development to do the job that, you know, as best as they can. We then have the, the sort of the resources and the governance and the rules that we at the Premier League, something that we can actively do something about and and really try to move that bit forward, because that's then going to enable the people in the clubs to do their job better. And then the third pillar is sort of around that player engagement. We know that the player voice is, is very powerful and is probably now something that is certainly 
an area that organisations and leagues are certainly taking more note of. And so we know the player voice is important and really utilising that and and collating the player opinion so that they can then inform our decision making and, and make sure that we are you know, doing the best job that we can do, which will help the club staff, which therefore obviously help the players. So those are, I would say, the, the three sort of pillars that we're really starting to explore and, and really sort of working through. And, and those are, yeah, the, the three areas that we're certainly going to see some movement over the next few years. And actually, one of the things I want to follow up on, you mentioned the academies. And obviously, for the North American audience that may not be as familiar with Premier League, is that obviously these clubs have you know, youth ages that go all the way down to, in some cases, if I'm not mistaken, U6, U8. Does that impact your job when you're, you know, you're talking about the work that you've done in the academy level is dealing with these younger athletes? Does that change your perspective in terms of how you approach the athlete development as a, as a Premier League? Well, I think so. My sort of remit of my job is predominantly first team, well, solely first team, really. So I don't tend to really move into the academy space too much. But what I can say with that is... I would say the academy, because they have got such a, a good structure now and a governance structure and they have rules and they're audited in terms of, you know, benchmarking them in terms of where they are in their education provision, their personal development provision and everything else in between is, is really, they take a magnifying glass to the Premier League do and, and, and look at the academies and measure them. We now have so much good practice that it just makes sense to continue that into the first team. So what we can do with that is actually look at it and go, we know this is working. We know the players like it because they tell us. We know that the clubs are developing because of it. We know the staff are developing, the players are developing. So how do we now translate that, that structure, into the first team? And obviously it's different in terms of, you know, you have international players coming in. The the money is completely different, which rightly or wrongly probably moves goalposts and and governance and things like that along the way as well. But we know that we have a very, very good system in place. So it's about, you know, evolving that now into the first team space as well. Out of curiosity, from your perspective, looking at it, you, you mentioned that obviously the, these clubs have long, long histories. What do you think sort of the, the, the primary obstacle is in terms of bringing some of these services into the first team? Where, where do those obstacles tend to lie? And I'm curious, what steps are you taking to overcome them? So I think... Some of the obstacles can just be something as simple as resources. Although they are big businesses, the clubs, they're actually quite lean in terms of headcount and, and sort of people doing their jobs. So you tend to find people within our role, they're also, you know, doing other roles as well that probably don't fall under their remit. So, you know, what can we at the Premier League do about that? Okay, it's about actually giving a bit of clarity perhaps on what the role is and, and providing good practice on what we think it should look like and where we think, you know, if you have staff in these positions, where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of you know that return investment and what they can bring to the players and ultimately then performance on the pitch. So that's, you know, a, a, a sort of real-time example. Perhaps, we, you know, we can look at the future in terms of you know, should all clubs be expected to have at least, you know, X amount of staff members within this role? You know, so there's a variety of different ways that we can look at. But with anything, we need to make sure that the clubs are all on board with this. It's not just as simple as, you know, me and Michelle coming up with ideas and then, you know, putting that forward. We have to make consult with the clubs and make sure they're in agreement. Significant changes as well. You know, the clubs have to vote through any, you know, sort of major changes. So it's important that we bring all these different people along the way. I would then also say one of the other sort of challenges, but is also uh, can be a great strength at times, is the number of different stakeholders involved in football. You know, we're looking at, we call it play care. We tend to find that actually, you know, you have coaches, you have sports science medical staff, you have managers, you have all these different people within the clubs who are serviced 
by different organizations. You know, the Player Association for the Players, you have the Manager Association for the Managers, Coach Association for the Coaches, and so on and so on. And so because of that, they all do, we all do our own sort of niche separate support packages. But actually, how do we bring that together as one and actually really give the best sort of support and provision that we can for everybody in the club so that we move this whole area forward together, not just for the players, not just for the managers, not just for the coaches, but actually moving it all together as one. So again, it's a challenge because we, you know, with any sort of stakeholder groups, you you need to make sure you're aligned and that's not always going to be very, very simple. You have different priorities, but when done right and if done right, it, it comes with great power as well. You mentioned that recently you were together with the player care individuals. Were there any common themes or trends that they shared with you and Michelle in terms of issues that they're facing, obstacles, needing solutions, you know, just wondering as they're in this this space if there's commonalities across the landscape of the Premier League? Sure. So uh, I think, and, um, you know, it's sort of very well documented there. There's certainly been Premier League players as of late who have been highlighted in sort of media with sort of gambling related issues. And so we know that that is an area of concern. It's an area that we know we need to provide staff, players with the right support so that they know how to handle those sort of situations, how to spot signs, you know, should they have any concerns with particular players, you know, what sort of spot signs are they looking for, how to make sure that they're not enabling a culture that is sort of easy for younger players to come through and start gambling, you know, whether that's on a team bus to away games or, um, you know, those types of environments. So that was an area that we we kind of spent quite a bit of time on and and sort of developing some of the club staff with. They also highlighted financial education as well for a lot of the players. Most players will have financial advisors, but we also know historically that that hasn't always been very successful. So again, it's you know, we would certainly see good practice as players having financial advisors, but it's making sure that the staff know what questions to be prepping the players with when they go meet financial advice. It's not up for us to, you know, be deciding that on behalf of the player, but we can certainly equip the clubs and with the players with the right information so that they're going prepared for those sort of conversations. Agent advice was another one. We know, again, agents can can be absolutely brilliant, but there's also, you know, some agents out there that probably haven't got the best interest for the players at heart as well. And ultimately, once they move on from the sport of football, are they still going to be there for the player when they need them? So again, you know, there's, there's a few different topics that we're sort of juggling with at the minute and that are a little bit more sort of on trend, shall we say. So, but what I would also say is, is that, you know, everything is always on in terms of sort of emotional, mental, emotional well-being support in terms of EDNI, in terms of health relationship training, you know, all these different areas that are always on because, you know, players, you know, they are or can be vulnerable at times and they are, they tend to be more likely to to fall into some of these certain traps just because of the given nature of their job and the role within society that they have. I think one of the questions too that always jumps to my mind when you start thinking about football, particularly from a global sense, is just the sheer international scope of the game. And I'm curious... How do you find interacting with all of these different athletes from all of these really diverse backgrounds, cultures, languages? How has that impacted your approach to the job? And has it created challenges, opportunities? How have you found that? It's it's a really good point because we have certainly seen, particularly over the last decade now, multiple, multiple international players playing in the Premier League. You know, most teams will have half of their team at least of international or be you know, being an international player. So with that, there are certainly going to be cultural differences, they're certainly going to then need cultural specific sort of awareness and training 
there's then going to be the language barriers. There's then going to be perhaps challenges with clubs embedding the players, you know, into a new community. Um, that's very, very different to, let's say, South America, if that's where they've come from. So there are certainly many, many challenges. But on the whole, actually, I would say that the clubs do a pretty good job in that. And I think one of the areas is around the inductions. So when the, the players come in, it's about making sure they meet the player in terms of really get to know the player, get to know the family as well. Because you now if the player's coming with a family, then actually it's great if the player settles. But if the family doesn't, then, you know, that's a challenge. So it's not just always about the player, it's about making sure that the families are well catered for, well looked after as well. So I think the clubs do an excellent job of that. And I think what we'll probably start to see a little bit more is is probably a little bit more culture-specific work where we see clubs might have an influx of certain nationalities. So, okay, what does that really mean um, for that club? Are there going to be challenges that that, that come with that that you then need to address? It could be something as simple as, you know, how you uh, post on social media, the sort of language that you use that you think is accepted in one country, but actually it's not within the UK. So it could be little subtle differences like that. But I, I think that, you know, it makes a big, big difference and goes a long way. And then the other fact is, or the other part is something as simple as just trying to translate as much of it as you can. If the person's not comfortable speaking English, then actually... You know, having the documents in whatever that language might be is very, very important or having someone that can translate. And, you know, we we actually had a, a great example of one club the other day when they was going through the induction and, and some of the more formalities in terms of what, you know, the sort of social media things they can and can't do or, you know, gambling awareness and things like that. Actually, then the English teacher later on within that week when they met with the player and tries to you know help them with their language and improve their English actually would then sort of go through all those documents again and actually really speak to them in terms of do you actually understand what this means what do you think this means and again it's it's something that's very very simple but they're important because if a club or a player gets it wrong then there's you know there's massive consequences for them and so again it's it that's some of the sort of things that we're, we're starting to see in terms of good practice within the clubs. That's great. I appreciate that perspective. I think maybe the last question for me, and I think it just sort of focuses on some of the things that you already touched on, is that obviously you mentioned that as over the next you know five years or so, you you think that you're going to start to see a lot of these different practices as it relates to athlete development and player care get adopted by the first team, probably become more utilized and again, become a more critical part of the culture in terms of that things coming together. I'm curious, what else are you seeing within your sport that you think the athlete development player care world is evolving towards? And what do you see coming down the pike even maybe beyond that? I think not, so this isn't necessarily just football, but I think just generally sport worldwide, we're seeing a massive shift and also in the corporate sector and actually just general day-to-day life, just around that focus on well-being and how actually well-being is sort of impacts your day-to-day sort of activities, you know, your how you're feeling, your mood, and therefore then actually if you're an athlete, how you then go on to perform. So I certainly think that there's going to be a massive, massive shift over the next few years within that space. So it's about understanding, you know, what a well-being actually means to footballers, what it means in terms of their values and their strengths, and then how you bring that out to then support them in their different well-being spaces. So whether that is attached then to their personal development or it is attached to their, you know, their religion or spirituality, it is attached to perhaps the community that they're trying to live in in terms of giving back and things like that. So I, I think that the just well-being generally is going to be a massive, massive area of focus. And so that is certainly something that we need to help support the staff to understand and to tackle and to upskill, I guess, as well, because it you know, we'll start to see players that are certainly a lot more interested in this space. 
And I'd say the other piece as well is we're starting to see players that are a lot more interested in, you know, I guess bigger societal issues. So a, a perfect example would be someone like Marcus Rashford, who plays for Manchester United. And he, he essentially took on the government in terms of enabling that, that children should be entitled to free school meals within the UK. So a massive, massive undertaking. But because he has that profile and, you know, the, the right connections, he was able to, to create change. And so, again, that's something that's important to him. So, again, we're starting to see, you know, players start to sort of look in that space where I think probably a decade ago, players wouldn't have even, you know, dreamt about being anything other than a footballer and just concentrating on the weekend in terms of, you know, those 90 minutes on the pitch. But we're starting to see a more well-rounded individual there that's, you know, is able to do things like that, but also be the athlete as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I have just a comment. It was it was fantastic having you and Michelle there at the summit this year and love to have you you two back and hopefully some of the individuals at, at your clubs will be able to attend. So, you know, we can learn from from them and they can learn from our colleagues stateside because I think it was such a great opportunity having you guys there. Oh, absolutely. We took away, honestly, so much information from just being in the room and listening to not only great speakers, but then actually the couple of days prior of, you know, visiting all the different leagues and the different offices, NBA, NFL, MLB, etc., MLS, and, and really just, you know, understanding their landscape, understanding their challenges, understanding their good practice. Because what you tend to find is there's a lot of commonalities. You know, there are obviously big differences, subtle differences, but there are definitely a lot of commonalities. And I know that me and Michelle took so much away from that that we then brought back. And uh, we even had a slide this weekend, uh, or sorry, the past couple of days that we presented back to our player care staff in terms of, you know, what were some of our key takeaways and what we thought was important for them to know. And and also so they have an idea of what's going on elsewhere in the world because, in football, it can sometimes feel a little bit siloed. You're only sort of looking words within your own sport. But actually, we know that, as I said, that well-being piece, it's not just going on within sport. It's happening in the corporate sector. It's happening, you know, just general day-to-day life. So actually, there's a lot of learnings elsewhere once we start to, you know, move away from just the sport football. So, yeah, I'm sure that we will be back. I say that. I don't have the child of the budget. But maybe if I say that, Michelle <laughs> will say it's fine. Um, but I know Michelle is very, very keen as well to come back, and I certainly would be as well. So, uh, yeah, thank you for having us uh, for that week in May. That's great. And I think it uh, sort of speaks to the power of PADS. It gets people to have exposure to different things. It can only improve the experiences of those folks who are working with the athletes and obviously ideally improving the experiences of, of the athletes themselves. So with that, many thanks, Christian, for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Again, Christian Thomas from Premier League. Thanks again, Christian. Thank you for having me.